Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. been with us these past several weeks, you know that we've been going um, along with Colossians 3.12. Let me just put that verse back at the forefront of your mind, read it for you before we turn back to the Gospel of John. But the, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And we have been taking that verse uh, uh, just about one word at a time and talking about these Christian virtues and how the uh, work and the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, manifests itself in our lives. Um, this morning, we come to the word patience, and uh, I think you can pretty much preach that sermon. You know how to have patience, and you know how it works in your life. And so there's nothing much left to be said. Or uh, we could point out that uh, the, the King James, the authorized version, uh, uses a, a word we don't use anymore, uh, the word long-suffering. Isn't that just like a painful word just to say it? Long-suffering. Um, but that's actually a better translation than the word patience. Uh, two Greek words are used to translate the word patience in uh, in our scriptures, uh, the one, hopomane, uh, uh, is a, a word that means to, um, uh, to um, uh, stand firm underneath the circumstances of life. That's probably what most of us think about when we think of patience. It's, it's things are coming your way and you need to endure them and somehow work your way through them and come out on the other side. And so it's, it's really more like patience with circumstances, patience with things, patience with events around you. Uh, so that's hopomane, but the word here is macrothemia. Need I say more? But it's macrothemia, which comes from how many Greek words? Two. That's right, Bert. Absolutely two Greek words. The one macro means long, and thume means to suffer. So long-suffering is a literal translation of this word macrothemia. And that's the word that Paul uses here in Colossians 3.12. He, he says, I want you to put on long suffering. Now, this long suffering, if you're going to understand what it means, um, think about um, another term that we do use, and that is short-tempered. Uh, you've probably ne never met anybody who was short-tempered, but it's the kind of person that the moment you say the wrong thing, they're, they're on top of you, and they're, they're, they're coming back at you, and they're, you know, instant retribution, and, and we're not going to let anything slide for, for any length of time at all, and so you better watch yourself. And uh, you know what it's like to be around that kind of person where you walk on eggshells, and you're just not sure when what you say is going to be taken wrong because the person is short-tempered. Now, if you take the word uh, macrothemia, you could translate it long-tempered. You know, instead of having a short fuse, have a long fuse. Uh, instead of being set off by the smallest thing, make sure it takes a whole lot for a very long time uh, to, to set you off and, and to, uh, you know, affect you. And so that's the sense in which Paul is using the word patience here. He's saying, have a long fuse. 
Now, rather than coming back at people and just jumping down their throat and instantaneously ramping up the level of, of conflict, have a long fuse, have a long temper. Be willing to suffer long, have long suffering in your life. Now, if you look at Colossians 3.12, you see that just about all these graces have to do with dealing with other people. It has to do with our relationships. We have a relationship with Christ. Uh, that's what uh, Paul establishes in the first couple of chapters. Chapter 1, he says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, he's the goal, the purpose, the reason, the meaning of all creation. And he is the head of the body, the church. That is, he's the reason we get together and worship together and study together. It's all to be focused on Jesus Christ. So he's the head of the body, the church. And so knowing the magnificent supremacy of Christ, Paul in chapter 2 says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. Not being captive to the world's philosophy, but rather moving out from that, walking in the footsteps of Christ. And so in chapter 3, he says, and so set your mind, set your hearts, set your affection on things above. Not on things of earth, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the, the whole sweep of Colossians is to put our focus and our attention on Jesus Christ and on him alone. Right? And as a result of that, of having our minds and affections set on Jesus Christ, then we put on these Christian graces. We put on the compassionate heart and the kindness, the gentleness. We put on the meekness. We put on the, um, the long suffering because our focus is on Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever heard anyone say, I just like practical sermons? Maybe you've said that. I like practical sermons. You know, when he, when he gets going on the seven Greek words for, for this and, the, and, the, and the, the various verb tenses, that just loses me. And when he starts talking about theology, I check out, you know, and I, I wait for him to come back to something practical. In fact, you go to, to church websites, and I do this. It's kind of a hobby. But I'll, I'll, I'll go to a, a, a church website, and a lot of times what you'll see there as a I'm not going to say a selling point, but as a reason to go to this church is, and, you know, we have worship service, fantastic music, and a practical sermon, a practical sermon that you can apply to your life. Yeah, that's what I want. I want to go to church, and I want to be told, you know, the one, two, three, the ABC, how do I get through life? How do I change? How do I do this? How do I do that? And so I want a practical sermon. And when we get to that election, uh, uh, that uh, theology stuff, then, it, then it's, it, it, it just sort of starts to lose me. I, I, why do we have to do this theology stuff? I mean, when was the last time you ever heard somebody say, you know, I'm just hungry for a sermon on election? I'm just hungry. Now, some people do, but, but, but we're the mature ones. But, you know... <laughs> Or, or somebody says, you know, it's been so long since I had a good, sound sermon on the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ. I mean, that, that, I, just, I just wish I could hear a sermon on the Trinity. You know, the Trinity is what I hear. You know, most people, it's, you know, I, I want something practical. I mean, you know, how, how, to, how to run my family, how to relate to my kids, how to bring them um, uh, along in life, and how, how, to, how to run my finances and get along with people. You know, I want a practical sermon. I don't want these theological sermons. Let me tell you something. And I'm going to because you're sitting there and I get to talk. <laughs> Around here, one of our organizing principles is this. The most practical thing you can do with your life 
the most practical thing you can do in any situation is live for the glory of God. Amen. You just live for the glory of God. Once we get that straight, that's why we're reading Colossians. Now, so it's easy, even as Christians, to get sidetracked and, and to have our attention just sort of uh, blurred out over a bunch of different uh, uh, competing interests and things uh, that are trying to gain our attention. And so we, uh, we, we just sort of make uh, our, our relationship with Christ a part of this, or, and, and the glory of God is just something what we talk about on, uh, on Sunday. But here's the deal. All of life is about the glory of God, and so the most practical thing you can ever do is to live for the glory of God. So if you want a practical sermon, we're going to proclaim the glory of God. If you want something that will help you organize your life and get your life uh, where it ought to be and how you ought to relate to others and organize your finances, the first thing we're going to talk about, the middle thing and the last thing, is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about God's glory because that's what gives life shape, meaning, purpose, and direction. So the most practical thing we can talk about right now is the glory of God. That is, we go back to the theological underpinnings of what we call the more practical stuff, which really is not practical at all unless you have the theological underpinning. What do I mean by that? I mean this. If all we've done in these last several weeks is, is, uh, is said this. So you've got to wag the finger while you do this. <laughs> be more compassionate. All right, get out and do that. Just be more compassionate. I, I, I want you to hunker down and just try harder. Click your heels, clap your hands, whatever it takes. Just be more compassionate. Easy enough, right? I want you to have more kindness. I want you to be more humble. I want you to have more meekness. Now go. Do it. Wasn't that practical? Didn't that help? You didn't know that. You know, you needed somebody to tell you, you need to be kinder and gentler and, and more humble. You know, and of all, all we talk about today is, is we say, you need to have a longer fuse. Really? I didn't know that. You need to learn long-suffering. I wish I could. You need to have patience. I've been trying. You see, just to talk about the so-called practical aspects of this verse is really uh, to condemn us to a life of failure and frustration because we really don't have it within ourselves to approach these Christian virtues and graces. We know we need them. But if all we say is, here, go out and do, then we're in trouble. Now, here's why this verse in, in Colossians 3.12, here's why it's so full of grace. Colossians 3.12. It starts this way. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, as God's chosen ones. Literally in the Greek, as God's elect. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are chosen by God. As I looked at that, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, th this is an amazing thing, that God would choose us. I mean, the moment came in history. When God looked down upon the earth and he looked around to find someone who was worthy of his choice, someone who was worthy of his selection, 
And he looked in all the palaces and he looked in all the mansions of government. He looked in all the halls of Congress and the chambers of the court. He looked through all the, the mansions of the wealthy. He looked all throughout the earth. He looked in the academic halls of the intellectuals. He scoured the earth and he didn't find a single person worthy of him. But that was the moment. He chose me anyway. Can you explain it? I can't. But out of all creation and all humanity, he chose me. This is incredible. This is, this is an amazing thing. Uh, we, we read from John chapter um, uh, 15 just a moment ago. Uh, chapter 15 in the Gospel of John falls between chapters 13 and 17. And what that means is that as Jesus is talking in John chapter 15, he's somewhere between the upper room and the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, all those chapters there in, in from 13 to 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples, the last words to his disciples before the crucifixion. And by the way, go read those chapters you find. What does he talk about? He talks about his relationship with the Father. He talks about his status as the Son. And he talks about the promise of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. In other words, the last thing Jesus talked to his disciples about before he was crucified was the Trinity. That's how important it is. That's how vital that precious truth is uh, to our, our, our faith. So, but, it, but in chapter 15, as we read it a moment ago, he, he's talking to the disciples. He says, look, I want you to love one another. This, this is um, my desire for you. It's actually a theme that's woven throughout the chapter. He says, I want you to love one another. But it's almost as if they're sitting there saying, you know, what, what's going on here? How are we going to accomplish this? And so right in the middle of it, Jesus says in verse 16, John 15, 16, he says, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I mean, this was true of the disciples. It's true of the, the, the calling of, of the disciples. Um, when, when he was walking by the seashore and sees uh, uh, James and John there with their fishing boats, it was Jesus who said, guys, I choose you. Follow me. James and John did not get up that morning and say, you know, we need somebody to work in our business. Let's take some resumes in. Let's get applications. Let's see if we can choose somebody to be a part of our lives. You know, this Jesus guy seems like he would work. He seems like he would be a really good guy for our HR department. He seems to know people and be able to work with them. We really need Jesus, so let's go. We'll choose Jesus to be a part of our business. That, folks, never happened. Jesus came to them and said, I want you to be a part of my kingdom. Jesus chose them. Matthew, when he got up that morning, he did not get up in the morning. He said, you know, I think I'll, I'll just uh, chuck this uh, tax collecting business, and I think I'll go find a Savior for me. And, um, I, you know, this Jesus guy seems pretty good. I choose Jesus to be my Savior. No, he went to work as he always had. He sat down at his tax collection tables there at the gate of the city, and he's collecting taxes as people are going in. And as Jesus walks through, he turns to Matthew, and he says, Matthew, I choose you. You come follow me. And as a result of Jesus choosing Matthew, Matthew then chose Christ. But Jesus chose first. I mean, we see this throughout the Old Testament. You know, God chose Abraham, Abram at the time. He says, you know, why would God choose Abram? What's Abram got to offer? 
He's just a guy sitting there, or the Chaldees, you know, the whole bit. And he's just sitting there. And it's not like Abram said, you know, I think I'll have a contest, and I'll figure out which God I should follow in order to leave my homeland and go wander around and establish a community whereby the Messiah comes. No, Abram's just doing what he's always doing. And God comes and says, Abram, I've got a plan for you. I choose you to go to a land that I'll show you. And through you, I'm going to raise up the Messiah. God chose him. Moses, who would have chosen Moses? Moses in the land of Midian. You know, he spent his first 40 years in the, land, in, in, in the courts of Pharaoh, and then he kills a guy, and he's on the run. He's a, he, he's a felon on the run, and he spent 40 years hiding out in the backwaters of Midian so he wouldn't get caught. And God comes to him and says, Moses, I choose you. Moses didn't decide to choose God. God chose Moses. And when God said, Moses, I'm choosing you to go to Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses' response to that was, in the original Hebrew, hubbada, 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 hubbada. <laughs> God, aren't you m- making a, a mistake here? See, Moses didn't choose God. God chose Moses. David, an unlikely king, God chose David. The prophets God chose the prophets. And when God chose the disciples, they weren't looking for him. God chose them. The apostle Paul, what an unlikely candidate. And yet God chose him in Christ Jesus. And the amazing thing to me is that he chose me. Why would he do that? What what could he possibly have been thinking other than about the love and the compassion and the mercy of his heart towards someone who was lost and couldn't find his way? You say, "I, I didn't choose God. God chose me, and God chose to put people around me who would raise me up, and, and, and God chose people to teach me, and God chose people to correct me and to reprove me. God chose people to, to instruct me and help me grow. God was the one who's been doing this all along. See, God chose us. And so when Paul says, you know, as God's chosen ones, as people chosen by God in Christ Jesus, that's the foundation for this. You're trying to put on the Christian graces. You you know, that's just trying to be better by working harder. But what Paul says, because Christ has already chosen you and because you're already being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit and because you are already loved by, by the heart of the Father, because these are already true, then these things, can become a part of your life. Therefore, put them on. See, that's why the glory of God is so practical because apart from God's glory, we're sunk. We can't do any of this. See, God's election toward us is unconditional. We didn't earn anything. Let's suppose that God's election is is conditional. Uh, Let's suppose the day came along where, where I went 24 hours without sinning. Okay? Happens frequently in my life. No, no, seriously, it does. Seriously, it does. I dream every night. But not. But let's let's suppose I get through 24 hours, spotless, clean, pure, and God says, Wayne, you did it. You got it. Let me here. I choose you, Wayne. Great. Well, you know what happens the next day? I'm worn out from the other day. You know, and I'm pretty much, you know, off my game by then and I mess up, what is God going to do? Because he put me there because I, I deserved it. He's going to you know, you don't deserve it anymore. 
back where you belong. But oh no, God's election, God's choice of us is unconditional. It's not based on how good we are. It's not based on how wise we are, how smart we are. It's not based on how religious we are. It is based on the love, the compassion, and the mercy of God for us. And in loving compassion, he reached out and he chose us. And it's unconditional. All that love and that election is unending. It doesn't, it doesn't change, you know. Je- Jesus said, let me, let me find it. Jesus said to, uh, to his disciples in John chapter 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, what that means is, in coming to, the, to Christ, that's the Father's will. That, that's the result of God's choosing you. See, when, when it's all said and done, there will be nobody in hell who says, I tried to be a Christian, but God wouldn't let me. No one will say that because no one in hell will ever have wanted to be a Christian. And there will be nobody in heaven who says, you know, I don't like this gig, but God made me do it. Because when God's grace hits your life, it changes your heart and your desire and your longing for Christ. So Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then he says this, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So what are you going to do to surprise him? What are you going to do to surprise Jesus Christ? You know, that, you know, that, that, that time you really messed up badly, you know, and it wasn't just that there was sin in your life. It was like sin in your life, and, and, and it wasn't just that, well, I made a mistake and I stumbled. It was I ran to it and I wanted it. And you just suddenly realized the strength of the, of the old sin nature, and that sin is just so odious to you, and you know it's odious to Christ, and you've got, you, you, you're just thinking, oh, you know, Jesus had no idea I was capable of these things. How could he possibly love me? Let me tell you, folks, before the foundation of the world, God purposed to send his son to die in your place for that sin and the grace of God is all sufficient and cleanses us from all unrighteousness this this isn't a you know get out of jail free card this isn't you know you know free to sin card this is the radical transformation of the heart that even when we do sin if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God's election is everlasting. It's unending. And God's election is without price because Jesus paid it. It is a precious election. For when God chose us, he didn't choose us on the budget plan. When God chose us, he didn't choose us to have an economy-sized salvation. When God chose us, he did not choose us that we might participate in a part-time relationship with him. When God chose us in Christ Jesus, he sent his son to die in our place, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and makes us holy, spotless, and pure, that we might stand before God in the presence of the Father before the throne of grace, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, we ought to just pause here for a moment and just thank God that he chose us in Christ Jesus. 
It is an absolute. Who is sufficient to understand these things? God's election for us is life-changing. It is a life-changing election. Now, it, it, it's life-changing simply because to know Christ as Lord and Savior, that, that just changes your, your, your whole heart and, and your direction and your focus. And as we've been reading in the book of Colossians, it, it changes entirely how we're uh, working out in lives and, and how we're, we're, we're moving forward and all that. But it's a life-changing election because when God brings us to the throne of grace through the blood of His Son, He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God's own presence, His Holy Spirit, takes up residence within us. The Holy Spirit of God takes residence in us. This is an amazing thing, folks. You can't just gloss over this. And because the Holy Spirit of God is working in us to conform us to the image of God's dear Son, to change our hearts and change our minds and to change our lives, because the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, then these things that we read about in Colossians 3.12, they're not only possible, they're, they're, they're almost guaranteed. I, I, you probably would want to say they're guaranteed in Christ Jesus as the Holy Spirit works within us. See, God chooses us for salvation He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He chooses us for sanctification, that is to be made holy. I mean, set apart for God, belonging to God, reflecting the character and the nature of God. That's why in Colossians 3.12, he says, put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy, isn't that the next word? And beloved. He chooses us for sanctification, and he chooses us for glorification. And that is that we might stand in the presence of God's glory for all eternity, singing his praises and bearing testimony of his grace in an everlasting worship service. You know. okay. So God chooses us, and that changes everything. Now, you, you look at that and you start thinking, wow, you know... Um, this, this thing of election, everybody, you know, argues back and forth about this. I had a friend in, in college, and uh, he and I had to agree not to talk about election. I mean, he wasn't just a Calvinist. He was a rabid Calvinist. He, he was like a mad dog Calvinist. You know, you'd say things like, uh, good morning. And he would say, God's, God told you to say that, and God made you say, before the foundation of the world, he decided that you would say good morning. Okay, philosophically, I understand this, but how you doing? <laughs> but this is a precious doctrine. It is a precious doctrine because it points us to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And without that, we're lost. We're lost. That's why we're going through Colossians. It is so easy for us to think we're living a Christian life because we're going along with this lemming crowd, uh, just doing the things that everybody does. And after all, there's, there's something called the church going on, and my great-grandfather once went to church, so I must, I must be okay. And, and we, we, we fail to understand that when God chooses us, he chooses us for a personal relationship, personally 
he has that relationship with us, and he calls us to a relationship with him. And we get going in this religion thing, and we're just, you know, tooling around religiously, and we lose sight of the fact that, no, this is a relationship of grace, a conscious, intentional relationship. And that's why we're looking at Colossians. So we have that focus, so we have that clarity in a murky world where, you know, the, the Christian life gets so fuzzy and blurry until you focus on, on who Christ is. And as you come to understand who he is, then you live and you walk in him. And understanding that, then you put on who Christ is. Yeah. With, all the, with all these things in Colossians 3.12 that we've looked at, we've always gone back to Jesus, haven't we? What did he say about it? What did he mean about it? This morning we looked at the long suffering that should be a part of us. Did I mention yet? That God is long-suffering with us. Think what would happen if God had a short fuse. Think what would happen if, if God's fuse was only a thousand years long. And the sin of mankind, could, he could only stand it a thousand years. Think what would happen if God's fuse was short with you and with me, and we sinned against him. What happens when God goes off on us? But God is patient and long-suffering with us, long-suffering with his children whom he has chosen. And because he took the initiative, because it all begins with the Father, because it all ends with the glory of the Father, because it is all about him, because we are his elect, he has chosen us, then we have the confidence and the boldness and the assurance to live each day, knowing that even when we stumble, even when we fall, even when we miss the mark, God's election has not ceased, and he still chooses us in Christ Jesus. Folks, what I would pray for you, I would pray for that kind of long-suffering, but I would pray for you to just come to the cross, pause there for a moment, to see the love and the grace and the mercy of the Father there given to us in the death of the Son, made alive in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, will put on Christ and walk in him. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we know that there's nothing we add to the equation of salvation. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would just once again have that fullness of surrender to you with the joy that we had when first we believed, that we would be excited about serving, walking, obeying, ministering in the name of Christ, and that who he is more and more would become who we are. Father, for that person here this morning who does not know the Savior, I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to change the heart, to bring about a conviction, a conversion, a confession. Father, for the brother and sister in Christ whose eyes have gone elsewhere, bring our gaze back to Jesus, fixed upon him, that you would be glorified through the Son 
by the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.